Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston, and OPEC Plus delivered up a decision this week that we're going to talk about in a minute. But let me remind you that we just don't talk about oil and diesel here on Drilling Deep. We talk about almost anything and everything else. And today we're going to talk with Clayton Griffin of OTR Solutions. They're a factoring company that is bringing attention to how carriers might suffer if a 3PL goes to a Chapter 11 bankruptcy reorganization. We wrote about this on Freightways a few weeks ago. We're going to follow up with a talk today. Please stick, please stick with us. Clayton will be here in just a few minutes. So OPEC Plus concluded its big meeting in Vienna this week, and the market was decidedly unimpressed. But let's talk some football here. The legendary Ohio State coach Woody Hayes, talking about his team's boring offense from the 60s and 70s, defined it as three yards in a cloud of dust. My former colleague, Vandana Hari, is now an oil analyst in Singapore, and I am sure she does not know who Woody Hayes was. But I liked her description of the OPEC Plus meeting in her analysis this morning. OPEC Plus ekes out a deeper cut, but loses impact in a dust of confusion. A dust of confusion, kind of like three yards and a cloud of dust. She's right. The numbers were pretty big. The headline number was 2.2 million barrels per day in cuts, but some of those cuts were already in place. So the headline number, the, sort of the sub-headline number really, is that there was an additional 900,000 barrels per day further cuts over what was already in place. I'm not going to go through a long list of numbers that will just confuse. It's hard to follow that many numbers when you're just listening. So let's just say that there are numerous analyses out there as I speak about how OPEC Plus got to its 2.2 million barrels per day and it's not as clear as 2 plus 2 equals 4. And that's why markets were unimpressed. The news of the OPEC plus cuts came out Thursday around midday Eastern, Eastern time, so there was plenty of time for traders to react. February bread actually ended up dropping more than $2 on the day. The price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME declined more than $0.05. Cents. There's almost a marketing message here. If you need a detailed chart to get through the message, that you're cutting enough oil to balance things that look like they're going to be unbalanced in 2024, that's a problem. Of course, part of the problem is that with so many countries now involved under the OPEC plus banner, there are more and more nations whose positions make a difference. African countries in particular were said to be unhappy with their quotas, but a lot of them aren't even producing their quotas. And that's another thing. If you're not producing your quota already, and that quota is cut, and that's supposed to be part of the plan to balance the market, is that really like a tree falling in the woods with nobody around? So these are some of the issues that OPEC Plus will be dealing with in the coming days. Let's note that I am recording this just one day after the deal was announced, so there's still a lot of sorting through, sorting through the numbers to figure out if OPEC Plus really has a viable plan to restrain production. As one analyst was quoted as saying in a, in a media report, if the full cut is realized, its impact on the market should not be discounted. But there was an irony in the announcement of the OPEC Plus deal on Thursday, which was the same day that the U.S. Energy Administration, Energy, Energy Information Administration, the EIA, came out with its monthly data report. That report is on a two-month lag, so the report released at the end of November is for September data. The EIA produces weekly numbers, but the monthlies are considered more accurate because there is more time for them to be vetted. And here's what we can tell you. 
The weekly estimates of U.S. crude production of 13.2 million barrels a day that ran all through September were affirmed in the monthly report. If you take U.S. production of crude oil and natural gas liquids like butane and propane, and then you throw in biofuels like ethanol or renewable diesel, total production was 21.3 million barrels per day. That is the highest ever. A year ago, it was 19.6 million barrels a day. Nobody has screwed up OPEC Plus's grand plans more than the United States. For all the moaning and politics, the fact is the U.S. petroleum industry is just killing it right now. And a lot of the reason that big bad OPEC Plus can't dominate the way that it thought it would and get the price of Brent up to $100 is because the industry in this country didn't get the memo that it was supposed to be in decline. The U.S. is a reason why the model for next year shows supply to be up about 1.5 million barrels per day, but demand not rising even 1 million barrels per day. That's the reality that OPEC Plus is facing. If all its cuts can be defined and come to pass, it may be able to get to that $100 Brent price. But the reality is that the last two years, in the last two years, we've had one of the world's largest producers become a pariah after its invasion of Ukraine. We've had the threat of war in the Middle East, and the trend in oil prices still is decidedly down. Yes, we had a warm winter. And no, we didn't have an active hurricane season in the U.S. Gulf. So those are wild cards going into 2024. But the bullish case has largely dissipated, and OPEC, OPEC Plus is scrambling to catch up. You can thank the U.S. oil patch for part of that. Time to move on here now on Drilling Deep. You know, the recent spectacular failure of digital brokerage convoy is just about the most outward sign of some of the wreckage that the freight recession is bringing, especially to the 3PL sector. There are other brokerages closing down, but many of them are small, and you really just don't hear about them. They are able to exit the premises relatively quietly. OTR Solutions is a factory company, and one aspect of these 3PL failures became the subject of a white paper that it produced uh, several weeks ago. Specifically, there's a type of financing, the type of 3PL financing, that is concerned about, uh, with that, that, that OTR is concerned, may leave carriers holding the bag in a bankruptcy action, and it wanted to address the issue publicly. I can tell you that I wrote the article about the white paper, and it generated a fairly large number of comments on FreightWaves.com, so obviously it has a lot of interest. With me to talk about that is Clayton Griffin. He is the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at OTR Solutions. So Clayton, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. I, I gave a quick thumbnail description of OTR Solutions. Maybe you want to add to that? Sure. Um, yeah, so we de- we're uh, a factoring company or we were founded as a factoring company that that services um, both carriers and brokerages. So kind of providing working capital solutions as well as ancillary solutions for the carrier and broker marketplace. And I think due to our positioning on both the carrier factoring side as as well as how we interact with brokers on multiple facets um, gives us a little unique perspective to to dig into those issues that you described um, that we that we delved into into the white paper. Um, it's definitely a very, very interesting time that we're in in the industry that, you know, over the course of the last 11 years since I've been at OTR and, and in TNL, um, we haven't really seen anything like it. 
All right, in past bankruptcies, of course, you know, in a bankruptcy, in a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, you line up the creditors and who's going to get paid first. Uh, usually the secured creditors get paid first. I don't know if in a bankruptcy, in a 3PL bankruptcy, there are a lot of secured creditors. Uh, but traditionally in bankruptcies in the past and 3PLs, do the carriers tend to be fairly high on the list of companies that get paid? Yeah, I mean, traditionally there have been very few um, freight broker bankruptcies and especially Chapter 11 freight broker bankruptcies. So to your point, when when a brokerage fails historically, they just kind of wind down their business. Um, they realize it's not for them and they stop doing business for the most part, assuming that they're not fraudulent or, or anything like that. Um, chapter 7, which we have seen a couple of times, carriers, um, the kind of debate really is between who is more secured in that creditor universe? Is it the people that are lending them money on their entire freight invoice that they're sending to the shipper? Or is it the carrier that ultimately did the work for the broker, which are a lot of the issues that the, that the white paper discusses? In a chapter 11, it's really unique because what you're effectively saying is, I'm trying to reorganize my business. I'm trying to shore up some of these debts that I don't currently have the capital to meet. But I'm doing that in this particular case by taking all the money that I would have ordinarily paid to carriers for the freight moves that I facilitated, right, as a freight broker. And I'm using those funds as if it were my own to, quote unquote, reorganize my business and get back in shape where I can kind of come out of bankruptcy and be a going concern in the marketplace um, in the future. And so that really is the issue that we that we find is that this gross revenue that brokers are basically counting as um, their funds they're using to reorganize their business instead of meeting their carrier obligations. Right now, I know that when we spoke, as I prepared the article that we wrote about around your white paper, you didn't want to talk about any brokerages by name that had gone Chapter 11. But obviously, there are some. Actually, I don't think Convoy is one of them. My understanding is they've not yet filed Chapter 11. I'm not sure that they're going to. Um, but but so, so there are other brokerages that have gone Chapter 11. So this is, I guess, what concerns you is that in their bankruptcy actions, which you sort of indicate have kind of been, not been all that frequent in the past, in their bankruptcy actions, the carriers are definitely down the list on those to get paid. Is that is that an accurate summation? Yeah, I think, I think there's um, concern in both situations, both Chapter 7 as well as Chapter 11. Um, but the concerns are slightly different. And I think the more obvious observation is in chapter 11, where you're saying you're not just liquidating your assets and trying to make creditors whole. You're actually taking assets, liquidating them, and then using them to bolster your business so that you can survive. The conversation in, tr in full liquidation, it's just whatever assets you have, and then they're being allocated to the, the creditors, which is still a concern in chapter seven as far as who has priority, these ABL lenders or the carriers that did the work. When you talk about chapter 11, it's a very unique situation. I think a more obvious one where it just doesn't make a ton of sense for brokers to be able to use the funds that they were effectively a fiduciary for between the shipper and the carrier, right? Ultimately a broker, just like other broker transactions, right? A mortgage broker, a real estate broker, a ticket broker, a stockbroker, in all of those situations, 
the broker sits in the middle and facilitates the transaction and has a fiduciary responsibility that when they sell something on behalf of someone else, the funds that they receive from the buyer have to be allocated to the seller of that good. And so you see that, right? When you go to StubHub and you use StubHub to sell your tickets, you have a high degree of confidence that they're not going to sell your ticket, hold on to your money, and then not pay it to you. Or file chapter 11 and say, okay, actually that that money that I sold your ticket on behalf of you seller, I'm now going to use because you know my balance sheet is, is in a position where I need some extra money. So I'm going to use that ticket money to, to bolster my balance sheet. So the chapter 11 situation and conversation is one that I feel like is just very obvious in my opinion that it doesn't make a ton of sense. The chapter seven or just broker failure conversation in general is still relevant because the question, in, my, in our opinion, hasn't really been answered and certainly not in bankruptcy court to this point, which is these ABL lenders are, do they take priority or do carriers, which we've seen in kind of circuit court, uh, prove out that they generally have priority over those funds because they're the ones that that did the work. So it's it's evolving as we go here. And those conversations, I think the reason that we published the white papers was that we would have conversations like this. I think common sense in the industry has always been the guys driving the trucks, the guys delivering the freight. We need to find a way to make them whole because they are ultimately the ones that are doing the work and, and, and making sure that goods travel across the country. We're not talking about taking anything from the broker, affecting the broker's margin. All of that is is theirs and they deserve to keep it. And if they can reorganize their business by leveraging their their margin, then that's a great scenario and a win-win for everybody. Um, but that's kind of the distinction between chapter seven and chapter 11. Now, one key aspect of your white paper is you talk about asset-based lending and that, that this makes the situation particularly uh, problematic, that this is a major factor in, 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 in 3PLs who are maybe going about a reorganization that might end up stiffing the carriers. Uh, you compare that or you contrast that with supply chain financing as a fairly standard, well-accepted means of financing in the supply chain. Can you talk about the difference between the two and why ABL, asset-based lending, is a real problem here where you don't see supply chain finance, SCF, as a problem? Yeah, absolutely. So an ABL, to be clear too, is a very, very common form of financing. Um, but the problem is when you apply it to the freight brokerage sector and really brokerage in general is where I think it becomes a little problematic because ultimately what an ABL lender is trying to do is secure their credit that they're extending to whomever is borrowing against a a piece of collateral or a particular asset, right? That's the asset and asset-based lending. And so in a brokerage scenario, an ABL lender is looking and saying, all right, well, a shipper is going to pay you the entirety of the amount. So that's the asset that I'm going to I'm going to allow you to borrow against. So if it's a thousand bucks, hey, here's nine hundred dollars. Go fund your business and do with what you please. That's 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 how you're able to borrow. And there's a little bit of cushion for that that um, asset based lender in there. The problem is that in most scenarios, eight hundred and fifty or maybe even nine hundred dollars of that asset is actually a liability for the broker. They're going to have to pay the carrier that actually ran the freight in relative short order, right? Maybe even two days if they have a quick pay or something like that. But let's just say standard terms, they're going to have to pay them in 30 or 45 days. So the issue has been 
You've had brokers borrowing against those full line haul, full shipper invoice amounts, and then not historically in, in the scenarios where we've seen these bankruptcies, they've not necessarily been good stewards of the carrier's money over the course of that following 30 days. And as the freight market has um, kind of been in this this downward trend over the course of the last year and a half, they've been using that money to backfill operating losses. So when their profitability has decreased, they've been using those funds that they've been borrowing to offset those operating losses, which means when the carrier's payment comes due, they don't have the funds available to pay them. That extends their payment terms, which is something we watch very closely. And then eventually you get to a point where people are filing against your insurance policies and it's just untenable for you to continue to, to maintain business operations, which is when brokers fail. It takes a lot for people to get there. It takes a lot for brokers to get there, which is why it's so rare traditionally. It takes a really, um, it, it takes a really large gap in cash flow, effectively a 30-day gap because you're borrowing against 30 days worth of, of, worth of uh, carrier payments to fund those operating losses. So this wasn't an issue until those losses got really large, which is what we've seen in the brokerage market over the course of the last year and a half. You had people invest in technology. You had people invest in human resources over the course of the bull run from 2020 to 2022. And then they haven't unwound those expenses out of the business, but volumes and rates have taken a severe dip. So long answer to the ABL question. All that to say, the main difference is in supply chain finance, instead of the $800 going to the broker, you're saying, I'm going to make sure that the $800 gets to the carrier. I'll still advance you your $200 or $200 minus whatever the financing fee is because that's your margin. And we want you to be able to get that so that you can fund your business with it, pay your bills with it, do all the things that a business should be doing with the profit that they make, reinvesting it in growth. But the delusion has been, I can reinvest the entire $900 that I'm borrowing in my growth when in reality, those funds aren't investable assets, their liabilities associated with carriers that are going to need to be paid. So big difference, ABL, the money in full, all of the shipper invoice amount is being used to advance the money in full to the broker. In a supply chain finance, it's split. You advance the broker's margin to the broker and you advance the um, carrier payments to the carrier direct to ensure that um, they're getting paid. Well, leading up to the current freight recession, uh, did ABL really explode in size, let's say all during, you know, the great freight market of 2020, 2021? Did you see that uh, the footprint of that really expand? I mean, I think capital in general has has definitely flowed into the industry over the course of the last several years, whether it's, you know, you saw it obviously in venture capital invested heavily into the industry. We've seen how that's worked out in some particular scenarios. Um, we saw certainly more institutional money flowing into the industry in the form of ABL and other types of um, kind of capital markets products. Um, so, yeah, I think there were definitely, as brokers expanded, they were looking, if they didn't want to sell a piece of their business, they were looking for ways to um, fund their growth. And one of the more common instances to fund growth for a brokerage over the last several years has been by leveraging this type of asset-based lending structure. Do you think that, uh, I mean, I don't know how long you've been in the industry, but do, do you, is this kind of the first time this has become an issue? Yeah. So I was, um, I, I 
came out OTR right after we were founded. So 2012, so 11 years or so. Um, certainly not an eternity, but it's enough to have seen a couple of cycles. Um, and like I said, it's not an issue that we've, that has the issue, I will say, hasn't materialized enough for it to be addressed, I think, like it needs to be addressed. Because it does take particular types of market conditions to expose the issues. If a broker is highly profitable, they're making a lot of money, then they can continue the cycle and it's not really an issue because they never dip into this reserve of carrier funds. If they can fund their growth with their own profitability, then if you think about the pie of money and you're only ever dipping into this, which is your profitability, it's not an issue. It's really when you start to dip into this um, segment, which is the carrier's funds, that you start to walk a pretty fine line. And if that profitability dynamic doesn't flip relatively quickly, then you continue to eat into those carrier funds until you don't have any money to to pay your bills. So um, yeah, it's the first time we've seen it really materialize and start to put a ton of pressure on freight brokers. So who's your audience for this white paper besides freight waves and the readers of freight waves? I mean, this seems to me to be issues that you're concerned that the bankruptcy courts uh, need to prioritize the characters. Um, does writing a white paper, even if it gets a wide publicity, does that help to sway the bankruptcy court to think in a different way about who's going to be prioritized in the settlement of the outstanding debts? I mean, that's a good question. I don't, I don't necessarily think it was it was pointed directly at the bankruptcy court. I'll, I'll be quite honest. I mean, we're making those points to the bankruptcy court directly. Um, certainly, industry feedback and opinion is important. When, but I think it's more important if we can get these things litigated and discussed in circuit courts because they're just handled very differently from bankruptcy courts to um, to circuit courts. But really, the audience is everyone who has a vested interest in the health and um, kind of stability of the supply chain. Because at the end of the day, we don't want broker failures to continue. It's not good for anybody really in the industry, except, you know, and certainly not those carriers that are that are owed massive amounts of money um, from those brokers. It's also to bring some light to the risk um, to those ABL lenders that maybe they weren't aware of. They've done some light under, or they've done underwriting on these brokers, but it's a different dynamic now. And so having an open discussion, obviously in these types of environments are great, but I think having something that can be widely disseminated to Anybody who covers TNL, anybody who is actively involved in um, capital markets, whether it be institutional or VC, um, I think should probably take an interest because it really affects how you evaluate the health and the risk associated with deploying capital into the supply chain. It affects how we view our business, to be honest, on the carrier factoring side, because in a lot of cases, we take the risk associated with that broker going out of business. And so traditionally, we have had recourse up through the supply chain to say, hey, if the broker goes out of business, then we'll deal with it and we'll go to the shipper and say, hey, the broker went out of business, you tendered, you you hired them to facilitate this. You now owe this to us because we represent the carrier who actually moved your freight at the end of the day. And that's really what's being challenged. Right. And the, and the carrier got paid by you. They factored into you and then you've got the invoice to, to claim in, yep. in a perfect world, you get that payment from a broker, but now if that broker goes out, 
you got to go to the shipper instead, right? And you have a ton of carriers on recourse agreements with factors. You have a ton of carriers that are working direct with brokerages. Um, and in those particular scenarios, the carriers end up eating those losses. They flow directly down to the carrier. And I think we can all agree that this type of market, if you have several invoices, you know, 2000 3000 $4,000 invoices that don't pay, I mean, these guys are living on and operating on an extraordinarily thin margin. I mean, we haven't seen, if you look at kind of the cost relative to the the rates that these guys and, and girls or women are being paid, it's extremely thin. And so if you come in and you say, all right, well, now these, these customers, not only are not going to pay you, but you have no recourse to go get paid for the work that you did. I think that's, that's something that most people in the industry would agree is, is not the path we want to go down. Now, if you're going to get pushback on your proposals or your, your ideas here, those, that pushback, I would imagine, would come from the lenders, right? They want to be top dog. They want to be at the top of the list of entities that are going to get paid. Is that correct? I mean, you, you mentioned court actions that you're involved in uh, as a creditor, I guess. Are you finding that, of course, the lenders are pushing back against those ideas? Yeah, certainly in the in the active litigations that or the active bankruptcy proceedings that are happening now, it's generally us representing the carrier and then um, and others, right? Carriers representing themselves, other factoring companies representing themselves, people that are representing the carrier part of the marketplace, and then people that are representing the the people that have lent extensive amounts of money to these brokers and thought that they had secured their credit in the collateral of the invoice itself, which I think is really where the kind of the faulty, the, the, the system breaks is and why there's a productive discussion to be had with those lenders so that we can have an agreement on what's, what is the path that's going to be taken going forward. Because like I said, it's going to impact how we underwrite our brokerages, right? What is the risk associated with the broker now if we don't have recourse up into the supply chain to go collect from the shipper? And it's going to impact how a um, lender assesses the creditworthiness or the ability to advance money to brokers. And so having the discussion now, while sure, we're seeing bankruptcies and we've seen you know several, but if that continues to happen, I think it would help us all if we all knew how these things would or will and should play out. So we we have conversations and we've had conversations with lenders. And I think that having productive conversations where we can all agree, guys, this is how it's going to be handled, which means we just need to be better at underwriting our risk or the lender needs to be better at underwriting our risk. Um, but if you have a, if there's a disconnect between what's going to happen in a particular scenario, that's where these large disagreements or you have people that were expecting things to go a certain way, not go a certain way relative to precedent that has happened in the past. Uh, what has been the reaction in the industry to your white paper? It got uh, I can tell you that it got a lot of hits on FreightWaves.com. So I know a lot of people read it. I assume that you sent it out to many individuals. Uh, what's the feedback been? It's been positive. It's been really positive. I think, um, like I said, the the reason we did it was not to try to um, attack anyone. I, I really think the purpose of it was to shed light on an issue that I think a lot of people, even those that were that are very very deeply involved in 
brokerage or or trucking or transportation and logistics that didn't have a firm grasp because they're very nuanced concepts when you get into this this lenders versus carriers versus ABL versus supply chain finance. Um, so I think it's been positive. And we've had a bunch of follow-up conversations. I think people understand that we certainly have a stance and an opinion, but more importantly, we want to have the discussion so that we could all come out the other side with a very, very transparent understanding of how these things should be handled in the future. We want to thank Clayton Griffin. He's the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at OTR Solutions, the factoring company, for sharing his views on their views uh, regarding, uh, I guess, would, would you call them a spate of Chapter 11 bankruptcies in, uh, uh, in the 3PL field? Would it, Are they enough to be a spate? I don't think a spate has a firm definition. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'll, you're the writer. I'll leave that up to you. Well, all right. I'll, I'll call them a spate, even though I don't know the whole list. But anyway, Clayton, thanks for coming in today. Okay. Thanks, John. So you have been watching and listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the freight. We are part of the family of freight casts, which we podcast, which we call freight cast. Boy, you think I've said that a million times? I wouldn't have a problem. Here at Freight Waves, you can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. If you're watching us, you're seeing us on YouTube. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.